0: Any of that good stuff to be left unsaid without it being recorded? No. So Dan Valenti, Dan Valenti has a beautiful new book. It's a book of poetry, a third person singular. But more important, it's just great to see you, man. Well, good to see you, John, and uh, great to be here.
1: You know, we're podcasting, <laughs> and when I hear that term, it reminds me of invasions of the body snatchers. You remember? the film there was an uh, the original film was done in the 50s but then it was updated and these alien spores grow
0: human like uh, <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying i really want to know the connection to podcasting well between because eating people <laughs> when the
1: alien spores develop they develop through pods ah okay and they become duplicates and replicas so example of if uh a john kroll pod were to be developing somewhere in this studio so then uh, right over there right over there was, yeah <laughs> i think i see it as a matter of fact still in its early stages thank god you would be coming from a pod so anyway it's just and that's how my mind works you see because pod is a word and during the invasion of the body snatchers. It had one use and meaning, and now we are podcasting, So it has another. And that was part of the fascination for me, even I'm, I'm early actually, on I'm, as a
0: kid. I'm actually fascinated where, where did that word come from pod? I mean, obviously you could put it together, Google it folks, but podcast, you know, we, and it's just, it's a ubiquitous term now, but uh, yeah. where, you know, but well, where does any where word pod come, and come And we're from? casting. Okay. Why yeah. do we
1: call a car seat, a car seat and not a wastebasket? <laughs> it's an organic process. And if you trace the history of language all the way back far enough, it, we eventually lose the the beginnings, of course, because it's prehistory. And we don't really know other than to surmise that it began with a series of gestures and grunts. And the grunts became more refined as we had to find ways to communicate ever more complicated thoughts and ideas. Mm. And that was a result of, you know, instead of four or five people living alone in a cave, now we got together with other people in other caves and we developed little tribes and villages and communities. Eventually you work your way up through the many millennia and now we're in this thing called civilization, which John, think about it it's only depending on how you measure it maybe seven thousand years old
0: maybe and then there's some who have theories that, nothing you know i mean who knows i mean do, do we really well, really I know. do we really really know our history you know what i'm saying so um, We we don't
1: and knowing history and knowing origins especially the origins of something as mysterious as language mm is a case of inductive reasoning. In other words, we look for clues and we observe that that happened. And then this came along and that came along. We take all, we assemble all these different little pieces of information and we arrive at a conclusion. And that's pretty much how we've, or how historians and academics have pieced together how language developed and worked. All I know is, For little Dan Valenti, words fascinated me from the beginning. I'll give you an example. Our first television, this is going back through the 50s, was a GE model. It was a big console. And TVs back then, of course, as you probably
0: know, John, through your parents, they were pieces of furniture. Remember that? A hundred percent. I do remember the early, early days in my life when it was still furniture,
1: but. Um, it was furniture and they housed the uh, video tubes, sure. the cathode ray tubes and these uh, beautiful pieces of mahogany sure. and, and oak and what have you. So we had the TV
0: stuff back, and in the we had
1: one channel, one channel, mm-hmm. WRGB out of Schenectady, New York, which was i believe the very first television uh, when tv started because of ge and uh, so we had the the television and then a m- miracle happened long about 1960 1961 and we got two other channels from the albany area we got uh, wten channel 10 out of albany and w-a-s-t albany to detroit which was channel 13 out of Schenectady. And my point with words is this, shows would come on and at the conclusion of many of them, you would see the credits. And the credits often was a stylistic thing back then, maybe a technological limitation, but often the credits would, would start at the bottom of the screen and go up to the top and and on a scroll, and they'd roll by. And (laughs) as a kid, I used to think that all those words were were being stored in the top of the television set. (laughs) So when Bill Witherow, our TV guy, (laughs) would come over with his toolbox. To replace a couple of vacuum tubes in the back.
0: Be careful the words in there. Yeah, you don't want to lose them. Well, I was I
1: was expecting you know the old joke with the snakes in the can, Mm. and they all come out. I thought that when he (laughs) unscrewed the back of the TV, all these words would spill out, and I would like grab them up. That didn't happen, but again, it it just uh, I was uh, just fascinated. Where do the words go? What do the words mean? And long about that same time i was a student at mount carmel school long since past, uh, it was a, a catholic parochial education great years for me kindergarten through eighth grade because we really learned about writing and grammar and uh, the, the the sisters the venerini sisters taught it well and in kindergarten well not kindergarten maybe first grade second grade third grade maybe all of the classrooms up to grade eight had the alphabet mm. on the various uh walls of the classroom and you'd see the capital letter a and the small letter a do you recall that i do yeah. sure I, th- yeah. I think
0: they still have that Ca- capital actually.
1: b small b and i would look at up at the alphabet spread before me on on one wall would usually be the front wall of the classroom as you faced it. And I'd look at those 26 characters. And at some point, I want to place it in fifth grade. That's when we really started to read poetry. And we got into John Green Greenleaf Whittier and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who lived in Pittsfield for his summer home was where high school is right now sure and so with, with poetry it started to make an impression upon me how language was rhythmical and musical and uh more than just words on a page and i w- would look at these 26 characters a through z and be astounded that everything that i've ever read in the english language. And would ever read would come from just a juggling of those 26 characters yeah and the combinations are
0: probably literally inexhaustible mm. and then understanding how in other languages uh sometimes uh, much more complex in the way that letters or characters work i think you know if you go to like hebrew or even chinese you know it's a different framework uh, as to how these characters are um, and they almost have maybe even double meanings and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if uh, you know how our language evolved as, as well as you did uh, do but um, but it is fascinating because everything is symbolism in a lot of ways. It, it, language it, is symbolism the the letter a
1: corresponds with the sound I just made a and B, C, and, you know, phonics is a whole whole part of that, but you made a great point that irrespective of the language, whether it's German or Japanese or Chinese or English, British English, or (laughs) our version, the, the key to learning a language is really to understand that all languages have certain commonalities uh, as to how they work. Now, the specifics of grammar and all of that, of course, are different, but the mechanisms are the same, I think, because human beings are the same. Our brains, left side is more of the mathematical and scientific side. Right side is more of the creative I notice when i said right side i <laughs> pointed to my left
0: okay I notice now that. that
1: proves i'm a poet okay right there
0: <laughs> uh, but uh i i, I good... wasn't i wasn't gonna say anything dan but no i, I, I know it, but i, I just, could just... see the look in your eye john uh, <laughs> i have a good friend of mine a, a,
1: a best friend in grade school jerome packard jerry who is now at the university. I get these mixed up. He is in, uh, I believe, no. Chuck Trezinka is another childhood friend who is a uh, former chair of the business department at the Kelly School of Management in, in Bloomington, Indiana, University of Indiana. Jerry teaches, I think in Michigan, maybe Illinois. But he's, uh, he turned into you'd never know it from his grammar school days when he was an indif- he was one of those indifferent students who just wasn't challenged enough. He became one of the renowned scholars of Mandarin on the planet today. And he was all, and he is still all about, just recently retired, about how the Chinese language works and comes together and we've had discussions about the mechanisms of language so that it all fits into again my fascination with these things and, and regardless of language if it's japanese <laughs> i just said some words there that <laughs> probably most people won't understand, except for our Japanese speakers out there. And pretty much uh, I used the same mechanics or platform, that's the word we use today, to put those sounds and symbols together to make a language. You know, all of this boils down to the fact that poetry was really my first form of experiment serious experimentation with writing when was that dan well i got serious about it i remember dabbling in in grammar school uh the eighth grade talent show i performed with a friend a couple of skits and then later on i came out and i read a version of the satiric version of the famous poem by joyce kilmer called trees i think that i shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree and it's just lovely uh, ode of praise to trees and you did it
0: so in a satirical way
1: i did it in a satirical out, way yeah and, uh, uh, the the original by the way, not,
0: you didn't do it wasn't slam poetry
1: no uh, it wasn't slam play. poetry but i got slammed for doing it And I will recite the poem in a second. The original poem ends with, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. And as a kid, I loved that poem. And so I wrote my satiric version and instead of the title being trees- Because you were
0: playing to the crowd, you know? I was playing the crowd as
1: I'm doing now. (laughs) And as I've always (laughs) loved to do, Uh, my poem was entitled, Beers, B E E R S. Mm. And it went like this I think that I shall never hear a poem as lovely as a beer. It's yellow base and snowy cap. I drink directly from the tap. (laughs) I sit
0: and (laughs) sip my
1: beer all day. And I remember the gesture until my memory fades away. Poems are made. By fools I fear, but only bud can make a beer. And of course it brought the house I'm sure, down. I'm sure the nuns love that. One. The, the nuns, the nuns <laughs> gave me a, a couple little frowns, but you know, afterwards sister Loretta, who was my sixth grade teacher. Um, I was in eighth grade when I did the poem. <laughs> took me aside and she said, Daniel, that was really good you know (laughs) and it was the first time i had really done something for an audience that got a reaction like that and i didn't get serious into writing poetry until i was in high school i was another one of those students that was just bored to tears i transferred after ninth grade in St Joseph's to PHS and so i went from kindergarten through ninth grade 10 years of of uh, good private education to now the public schools and i just was uh, so far ahead of everyone that i just kind of lost interest just kind of flailed my way through but i did in my english classes have a little spark of something ignited when we would get into Shakespeare and poetry. In fact, I started to dabble in writing verse. And for 11th grade, we had an English teacher named Mr. Stevens, and we had to do a book report on a book of poetry. And I did something kind of sneaky. I reviewed a book of my own poetry (laughs) and i used a pseudonym i remember it was jw (laughs) mcclennan and i presented some of the poetry in my report and i said mcclennan is one of the great and emerging young american poets and i got a b plus on it
0: (laughs) so you were one of those
1: kids i was (laughs) one of those kids and i you know, education often fails to engage the intellect and the creativity. Something about, think, think about what happens uh, before a kid gets into uh, uh, school. I am thinking of public education here mostly, but uh, you know, that, that kid wants to learn everything. They're curious, they explore, they, they try things, they fail, they learn through the discipline of nature. You know, you see a kid in his playpen and he's stacking yeah blocks and if he stacks them the wrong way they fall so he learns about gravity and he learns how to do it the right way and kids are like that with everything they try naturally they are that 100 as, as well you know joe
0: so then the so then the question is what happens in our schools well we we turn and, off and, the and with respect to all my educator uh friends and, and loved ones mm-hmm. You know, but there's a system there that doesn't necessarily encourage, and I'm being kind, creativity. Those. And creativity is a process of discovery, of uh, you know, of testing, of seeing what works and being able to fail. And being able fall to fail. Down we and don't and like failure anymore. It's become one of the cardinal
1: sins in America you know there's a little league out in California that actually was thrown out of little league because the parents insisted on not keeping score because that would damage the psyches of the children on the losing team i mean this is how far it's gone what happens uh, in education despite the efforts of many great educators and people I, taught at the college level for 30 years as an adjunct in, in various, uh, colleges. What happens is that the child now sits at a desk, like an adult, and there is a plan in place, a regimented educational plan that's thought to be the best for the child and it has the effect too often of flipping off that switch of creativity and it's unfortunate when it happens when you have that particular teacher though who finds the switch and turns it on uh incredible things happen there's an essay by a that i used to teach in my composition class by uh, a Writer Linda Berry. And in this essay, she writes of how at home she and her siblings were virtually ignored. And she has a a great metaphor for how that happens. Uh, Her parents would watch the TV with the volume off. And she doesn't come out as a good writer and doesn't hit you over the head with it. But basically she's saying, my parents turned the volume off on our kids and ignored us. She used to sneak out at night. This was in the Seattle area and in the dark and the pre dawn darkness walk her way to school. And she had made friends with a janitor. The janitor would let her in so that she would be there when her teacher, her fourth grade teacher arrived. And this teacher did something uh, so important to Linda Barry. The teacher saw this kid who just was craving attention and craving to be noticed and craving to be engaged. And she noticed her penchant for doodling and sketching. And she gave, the uh, young Linda Berry, a set of crayons and pens and paint and pencils, and paper, and just said, Go ahead. Linda Berry discovered the work her soul had to have. She became an artist and a cartoonist and an illustrator and made a good living at it. You know, getting back to poetry, it was when I got into college uh, particularly at union college where i did my undergrad in majoring in english that i got into the nuts and bolts of language we took all of the lit courses american british uh, western civilization lit poetry british uh, the victorians i i fell in love with thomas hardy uh Alfred Lord Tennyson, Robert Browning, Matthew Arnold, Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I had all along the way from grammar school to high school to college, to my graduate work, that one or two teachers who, who saw something in me. Mm. And I had the good experience of, of finding Those mentors, and this happened when I took my first real job, which was in the newsroom at the Syracuse Post Standard, a couple of editors, particularly George Carr, my city editor, who encouraged my obvious ability to take these 26 characters, A through Z, manipulate them, and come up with something that was communicating. Which is the goal i think of anything you write whether it's poetry or prose or a 200 word novel or a haiku you want to communicate something to someone else out there that usually you don't see you're doing it first for yourself because you have something to say and i've said this often in talks and and in in various classrooms or i've had a chance to engage with developing writers, and I would tell them that writing is very much a vocation first. It's something you feel like you have to do. And you've seen this, John, musicians, artists, writers, anyone who has a passion for a certain thing almost has to do it. And we've also seen cases where people have ignored their passion. You know, the the ballet dancer who wants to dance and her parents say, you're going to major in business.
0: And I don't think there's anything more sad, excuse me, in this lifetime when people specifically know what their passion is, because, you know, um, some people may not even get there. But (laughs) but if you know what your passion is and you do not pursue it, uh, I can't really we only get one shot at this life you only get one shot and not to be able to carve something out even if it's not your full-time job because we live in this world where we got to pay bills and we have to feed the family and Mm -hmm. but uh not to be able to in some way shape or form with whatever we have for resources uh you know that that you have to do that that's part of the sole purpose and if you can and you can feel it i mean you know and i think some people again may never get there but if you get there and you don't follow it that's a damn shame
1: great point how do you get there first of all you have to realize what that passion is and that involves a journey inward it's not going to come from outside it's going to come from and dan that's lesson number one that is lesson number i mean one. there's
0: so we, we live in this world where other people's opinions yeah there's got to be some sort of uh you know other people's opinions opp um or or opo opo something the the (laughs) opo other people's
1: opinions yeah like parents who say you're gonna be a doctor when you uh get up uh, grow up and go to school and college you're gonna be a doctor i don't want to be a doctor my roommate in college john rosen who is now making a great living in technology out in california his family said he was going to be a doctor and he was with me at union college a pre-med student turned off by what he had to learn as a pre-med and was always drifting off and experimenting he had his little boneyard and was creating these little gadgets and little inventions and stuff it wasn't for him the medical he dropped out and it could have ended up badly for John. It didn't. He pursued his interest, and yeah. you know, ended up making that living. I would tell, particularly young people, but uh, because they have time on their side, reach out. Try to find out what it is your soul must have, yeah. and then figure out: is there a way I can make a living at this? And try. You've got time on your side. You can yeah. fail and people, failure is a great teacher as we all know.
0: It is. So there, there's 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 about 3 lessons here. No you know, the first one is part of finding your purpose is stop listening to other people. And, and I'm not saying like just stop listening to, you know, don't listen to your parents or to, Of well, course, you know, of course you take, you know, you have to take everything in and and you make decisions. Point.
1: Listen to everybody but only select what Makes sense to you. What works for
0: you. Right. The other and, stuff, just let go. Exactly. At some point, you have to stop caring what other people think. I mean, just as yeah. a, a, you know, at that point, um, when it comes to what your purpose is, and then, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the other aspect of finding a, a career um, to to make that work. That can, that can be a little bit tougher, um, of yeah. course, in our in our world. Um, but uh, I, I forgot. I, I had three lessons, and I, I forgot two of them. But anyway. Well, how um, many? It, it starts with. You know, listening to yourself. And And I think that's become more difficult
1: with Mm. the onslaught of technology. Just look at the pace of life today. It's just we are on our screens constantly. There are constant interruptions and technology has become so intrusive that you really have to deliberately and consciously carve out a time and a place and a method where you can retreat from all of that that's and right. really do a content analysis of what's going on inside. What do I want? You know, youth is, is great for
0: covering up and hiding a lot of things, you know, remember. And by, one- and by the way, that's, that's the other point. You have way more time than you think. Cause I think a lot of times you're being told, you know, these kids are in college. Oh my God, you got to, Get out there. You gotta you get got, out there now. You, you gotta you gotta start what do you, and, and and yeah, go make money, but but you can also make money bartending at night. You know, I mean, like so so to to actually follow your passion, you have more time than you think. Have some patience. And don't think that if it doesn't work in one week or one month, that that that's the end game. So patience another is another thing.
1: Well, my favorite question, not. Uh, that would be put to young people going into college or in colleges Uh, what are you going to major you know asking a 16 and 17 year old who's not out of high school what their major (laughs) is is preposterous but and it's a question that and oftentimes from well-meaning parents and guidance counselors and teachers and adult figures Will ask this with good intentions, but it does it or it can put a lot of pressure on a kid, so that uh, he or she thinks, "God, I'm a freshman now. I'm in college. I don't know what I'm going to do." You don't need to know what you're going to do. That's what you have to find out, which is the value of a broad, liberal, cross-disciplined education. A little bit of everything. You know, we don't in the lower grades very much teach geography. We don't very much teach home economics. We don't very much get into grammar. Or how about,
0: or how about balancing a, uh, a budget for the household? Finances. Uh, if I had finances. to make one <laughs>
1: change in the curriculum for primary education, is that what they call grammar school and, now? Yeah. And, uh, and It would be, how, how does money work? what are finances? Yeah. How many young people have you seen who whip out
0: a piece of plastic and not realize what right. they're doing? And and that's not, and, and honestly, and this is where, you know, I think a lot of us, we look at it as sort of uh, moralistically or whatever. Oh, the kids, they don't know. But the thing is, we're doing this. Now we, there's a system that's been set up. Hawaii in the world is finances, not part of a very basic curriculum and it makes one think what kind of what are we trying to do here you know are we just trying to create more people who are living off a system that the, the answer is yes that we benefits are, uh some people and but leaves most others uh, in debt or just barely making it we want to create consumers, consumers. we you don't want it, <laughs> we don't
1: want human beings anymore this we want we people got. who consume When I was in first grade, one of the things that happened was that and this was an effort of the school and the parents, we opened up a bank account at what was then Berkshire County Savings Bank on the corner, the pop corner, now Berkshire Bank, and we had an actual bank book with my name on it, and I remember thinking, wow. I have arrived <laughs> and we would have i think it was a dollar a week and if you didn't have the dollar at the end of the week it was 50 cents or a quarter but every week if you could do it we were encouraged to make a weekly deposit and we'd give the bank books to our teacher with the money a lot of trust and they obviously had an arrangement with the bank because I remember our report cards would come in a little envelope that would have the (laughs) card inside and it would have a picture of the bank and the name of the bank so they had an arrangement and the bank would take care of the deposit and we'd get the book back and you'd see wow that grew a little bit you know
0: I remember (laughs) going
1: with my mother to uh our family's accountant my that's dad. when you actually
0: used to get some interest from your savings account
1: uh, yeah and <laughs> even if it was a couple pennies uh, i remember asking my sure. mom where did that come from and she explained the concept of interest and compounding interest i was pretty well equipped to understand money of course no one understands money really nobody understands money nobody understands economics it's like quantum physics if you say you understand it that's a confession you don't (laughs) understand it but these things are important can we get back to language though
0: (laughs) sure yeah hey man i i I got all day (laughs) Uh, so do i be careful be very careful by the way um i I didn't read the entire book uh but uh it's third person singular Singular. 33 and 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 a third poems each and this is uh three authors uh let me dan valenti is the top billing tell me about this this book let's talk about this book (laughs) this book is a unique collaboration
1: of three poets you saw their names on the cover my name jerry chaplin who is a poet from Charleston, South Carolina. a book uh, a book that uh, I published Jerry's first book back in 2011 when there really weren't the platforms for this. And it was a book that we that she titled Vertically Coastal and the title comes from the fact that she lives in Charleston, South Carolina and she and her husband Peter, great fellow, well met would come to the Berkshires in the summer and come up the coast and enjoy the arts and everything else you can enjoy about the beautiful Berkshires in the summertime.
0: And and just real quickly, a book of poetry. We're in 2022. Yeah. How popular are poetry books now? Well,
1: you know, if we had written this book back in the 18th and early 19th (laughs) centuries, uh, for example, George Byron, Lord Byron was Paul McCartney in his era. He was a rock star. That's how important the arts and poetry were. Now you ask how important it is. And the answer is not very, it's an acquired taste. Not money are acquiring it, but about that first book, Vertically Coastal, we ended up selling, Jerry just, uh, sent me an email, Jerry Chaplin, that, uh, that book ended up selling 450 copies. Let me say this. If Yale university press or any of the houses that still publish poetry sell 500 copies of a book of poems, that's considered a best seller. Yeah. We sold 450 copies of that. And third person singular is, uh, well on its way. It, we released it on February the 8th. It's available on Amazon, folks. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, you get free shipping $15 for the paperback, $9.95 for the ebook. And poetry has what you would call a niche following. And, you know, my philosophy has always been when you have a niche, you scratch it.
0: So uh, <laughs> sorry about that. But, so we, well, I mean, yeah, I it, it screams niche, and that is, and and the thing is, um, nowadays uh, it's the process of publishing isn't necessarily as cumbersome. So there uh, are the platforms that word again, John. right? <laughs> uh, the platforms, and you know, we uh, yeah. So uh, we were talking about this before, um, and we'll get back to the book, but like in in this universe of. A wild west of the internet. Now, the internet was this unregulated,
1: completely unregulated, it was
0: the wild wild west and and then over time dodge city without matt Dillon, the corporations you know take over yeah. and they start to clamp down and and even all the platforms within it the facebook's and the instagrams and and twitters and they, they start to make things more constrictive and yes it's pay to play and everything like that so that 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 happens that's a natural process sure does. it also has been the case uh but uh, in in publishing that it's now uh way more flexible and and you can and you can sell uh those books you know using platforms like Amazon or uh, or probably some others but Amazon yeah. is the predominant one but yeah. you can also you know uh, publish and that goes without the massive cumbersome process and the Ooh. overhead that goes with it so selling 500 books is profitable 500 books poetry. poetry.
1: Think about that. You know, what we're doing right now, podcasting is circumventing what we would have had to have done and which both of us did for years on commercial, you did public radio Uh, you would have to go
0: I did a little public and I did a little community you know I mean you're a radio guy which which is why I love John Kroll by the way yes and and actually you know this is more my thing we did the show on North Street and uh ran Facebook live and and cut up that content and it was very big and visual but this is my thing and and, uh this is more me than anything you know this conversation you know uh,
1: I'm a good judge of character. I read body language. I can look into someone's eyes when we're doing it in person. And I can just see from, and we've done radio together, John, a little bit. Yeah. And that was your gig. You know, I did television for three years and uh, along with radio. And it's a whole other thing. You know, there's the saying that TV, why is television a medium? Because it is neither rare nor well done (laughs) and and that's true because with tv you have to have cameras directors floor managers people in the booth lighting sound everything and you gotta look a certain way and with radio you get you just get the voice and you know when i did my uh show the dan valenti show on wbrk yeah for for all those years classic and and you know this uh you take calls and all you have is the voice and by over i did something like i don't know four thousand shows and over all that time you learn to read a voice almost as well as you could read a book and that's the, the fun of radio you know the theater of the mind you're conjuring up words and people who are listening have images associated with those words I uh do want to come back to, to this <laughs> yeah. book again uh shameless plug but it is not
0: shameless I'm no. full
1: of shame here but this,
0: I mean listen it, it is it, it it is who you are and yeah. you know and and hearing your story because I know you're a prolific writer and you've written Many books in many different forms. um You know, books about the Red Sox, books uh, you know about baseball, books, travel books, travel I, books. I did a book and, and, on on medicine, cancer. I mean, uh, the, the the list of books by Dan Volanti is is very long. long and, I, and I know you're you're working on an epic book on religion which uh I'm looking forward to uh reading when when that's uh, ready to roll. Thank you. But um but here it is. This is where you started. These are really your roots and um and I think you know we were talking before about poetry and what people learn in school is poetry. Okay, you have the rhyme structure, you have this and that. And, and many of us have some background in that. You clearly understand that. But there's an old saying that when you know the rules you know you, you can you can break those rules only so when you know the rules. only when you know the rules yeah. and you master those rules it's okay to then yeah. break it you know i think you know picasso used to do that right so um and and others um who are masters so your form of poetry uh what i found um is a little bit more open-ended um and uh and structurally um more loose and uh and but again from someone who knows the rules, you, you can break them. So that, that was my impression on yeah. uh on, on your poetry let me in say, this book. Uh, let me say
1: a little bit about the, the three writers in here. We talked about Jerry Chaplin and of the, the three authors of uh, third person singular, myself and Paul Kosak, who I'll mention in a moment. Jerry is the most, I would say, emotive, meaning derivative of emotional she gets to the heart she goes directly to the heart and i might read one or two of her works let's do it that'll illustrate that yeah paul kosak is a gentleman that i met way back in 1976 the centennial year the year that america elected jimmy carter or nominated Jimmy Carter, yeah, and elected Jimmy Carter to the presidency. I remember uh, the the Democratic National Convention in New York City. I was at the Post Standard at the time, and and getting a chance to cover that and being exposed to big time politics, learned a lot uh, that came in handy later. That's when the convention
0: actually meant something.
1: It meant something. We weren't sure who was going to emerge. Yeah with the presidency carter this unknown peanut farmer from georgia a governor uh, just came out of nowhere kind of a, as a knee-jerk reaction to what had happened during the nixon years and uh, gerald ford whose primary talent was bumping his head on helicopter doorways but back to that i met paul kosak when he joined the paper post-standard in in 76 so we go back a ways and we've stayed in touch over the years and uh, glad to say much more in touch since 2012 when he was fooling around with a book that ended up becoming a great baseball title I think maybe on its way to becoming a classic it was a memoir that he wrote that centered around the fact that he grew up a New York Giants, San Francisco Giants fan, Mm. and his idol was Willie Mays. The book is called Chasing Willie. And it was about his boyhood all the way up through uh, what was current at the time, 2012, 13, and how how baseball inter- Spursed with his coming of age. It's a really great book. I highly recommend it. Also available on amazon.com. Paul is an imagist. Almost if you're familiar with Japanese poetry and Eastern poetry, they they give you uh, the haiku is the perfect example of this. Just an image. And the image calls to mind a picture and the picture will trigger certain associations in the reader we hope and so his poetry is like that mine let me just read uh, yes the the format of the book is each of us the subtitle is 33 and a third poems each and that's literally what happened we each composed 33 poems and we collaborated on one on one i
0: got it an experimental work And, and, and and boy that must have been interesting oh because that one poem you got to put your own flair into it right oh yeah that's really important if ever a poem
1: was schizophrenic the this poem is but you know (laughs) i i wrote the first third of the poem to kind of set us off in a direction and then jerry did the second third and then paul did the third third and so there is a theme running through it believe it or not the amazing thing about this book and this could not have happened without without years of of work and the postal service doing its job the three of us have never sat down in the same room together isn't that
0: unbelievable
1: the three of us have never been on a conference call together
0: not even zoom
1: not even Zoom. we have not zoomed (laughs) we have not we have unzoomed and i was kind of the pivot point here i just as a lark introduced jerry to paul via email i figured wait these these two writers are doing great work and i must say jerry chaplin and paul kosak are fast becoming known and uh, i without hesitation would call them two of america's finest contemporary poets and writers i introduced those two by email and they took up a correspondence independently of me which delighted me and told me something's up here they're finding common language yeah and so I learned that each was working on a set of new set of poems. I've been Jerry Chaplin's editor since I first discovered her work in 2011 when we did that book Vertically Coastal. And uh, she was the first poet in residence at uh, I forget the name of the famous uh, arts museum in uh, Charlotte. First poet in residence, and uh, she's won many awards and contests and recognition for her work. And I am proud that uh, her work also contains my work because I have been her editor. So I was very familiar what, with what she was doing. Paulie would send me poems just through email, just stuff he was doing. And I got the idea. We Three of us, as I said, never were in the same room together, but over the summer, Paulie would visit the berkshires and stay with us my us meaning my lovely wife lisa l-i-s-a <laughs> and we've got a plug-in event that's coming up in pittsfield on may the oh, 6th, lisa as
0: far as far as lisa is concerned but so, man you are a lucky man
1: oh i am you know who a lucky man
0: he was
1: that's me except i hope a bullet doesn't find me on the end like that song but so Polly would come up and then jerry Uh. and her husband peter uh while they were in the berkshires came to the house uh, at a later date and it was then that i got the, the this flash i said we're going to do a book together and as you said the platforms now make publishing a a much uh, a less arduous task than it used to be the the problem in the old days was yeah you could do a book but how do you distribute it how do you get it out there well yeah. fortunately there are places to do that one is called book baby there, there are places that you can have that will find these niche markets but anyways we that, got the idea let's and, and let's then, do a book,
0: John, I mean, and then there's just also just a good old fashion, uh, you know, knocking doors and, and getting into knocking doors. Each and- of us
1: had uh, our own small followings and, you know, with email and you let people know that what we're doing and uh, we kind of kept it under wraps until it was done and. Then, when we released it officially on February the 8th, we're doing this in the middle of March, this broadcast. The the, the word gets out there, as you say, uh, in new ways and in old fashioned ways. So Paul's the images, Jerry is the emotive poet, and I'm I'm not sure what I am, because I think the person who is the 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 last person you want to ask about their work is the artist sure because the job of an artist and i would include what you're doing here john Mm -hmm. as art and my definition of art is, is is a simple one if the product is purely aesthetic and purely done to feed the imagination that's art a a chair that we're sitting on well-designed very attractive but they first serve a practical purpose Mm -hmm. meant to be someone to sit in them an architect you look at the saint peter's dome or any beautiful building and you say wow that's art it's artistic but is it art? I would say no, because its first purpose is to house someone or something. But this broadcast, yeah, it doesn't serve a practical purpose in the sense that it's not building a product that is going to serve a physical need. And so that's what art is to me. And when people ask the artist, "What does it mean?" It's, and it's a great question, and it's a well-meaning question, but the my response is, well, I'm much more interested in you telling me what it means to yeah. you. Yeah. Because everyone's going to read it or see
0: it or look at it differently. And I would f- probably it, the simpler the explanation, because when you ask the artist, it, y- usually there's one <laughs> one thing right like what 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 do you you don't have to have a, a hundred no. reasons no to write a book of poetry no. you don't need a hundred reasons to paint a painting yeah. you just need one yeah reason a seed a germ a spark and that's of an idea and, and that's
1: creativity and from that tiny little spark of imagination and creativity which we earlier talked about with respect to the classroom how kids just overflow with that before mm. they get into school and then something turns that switch off mm. for so many of them but it's that little seed that it's like the cocoon or pod to get back to that word from which the works of art come